Hi, and welcome to Economist on Zoom Getting Coffee. This is your host, Dani Bahar. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Diana Van Paten, and she is an economist working on topics such as international trade and macro development. She's an assistant professor at Yale School of Management. She's also faculty affiliate at the Economic Growth Center and a research affiliate at the Cal Foundation, as well as the NBER. She received her PhD in economics in UCLA in 2020. And she's working on really fascinating topics that have to do with issues that touch upon globalization, the role of firms, the role of workers, and, and the mix of all these. And, and we really had a fascinating conversation. So without further ado, let's just go into it. Diana, welcome to Economist on Zoom Getting Coffee. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited to share my work. Likewise. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was really excited when I started to learn about your research. I don't know if you did it on purpose or not, but I think you're touching upon issues that are really, really important on events that are happening in the world today. So I, I'm going to try to ask for your thoughts based on your own research and, and what you've done. Let me start maybe with this idea that nowadays you hear the media and like overall we have this feeling that small firms are good for workers and small firms are the ones that we need to protect. But when these small firms suddenly become big firms, you know, we, we tend to think that they, they tend to exploit their workers, that they don't provide them benefits, that they're also not giving them enough wages. And therefore, like the, those labor practices, we tend to reject them. You've written a piece, a, a very important piece of research that kind of shows a bit of a different story when looking at your native country. So can you tell me a little bit about what you did there and, and what was your finding? Sure. So to begin with, I'm Costa Rican. I lived there for most of my life. I moved to the U.S. when I was 24 years old. In Costa Rica, I think that the, the overall feeling is kind of similar than in the U.S., you know, in the bargaining process, workers tend to have less power than firms and even more so if we're thinking about large firms. This has also been true historically. So in particular, my work speaks directly to this topic, focuses on a big firm that was operating in Costa Rica and, and, and many other countries in Latin America since 1899 to 1984 called the United Fruit Company. This company, even today in many countries in Latin America, gives people a very particular flavor because it's associated with practices of exploiting workers, maybe even like intervening with government practices in, in, in like not the most transparent way. Growing up, that was kind of the feeling that I had from reading famous novels like 100 Years of Solitude. There's another novel uh, by a Costa Rican author called uh, Mamita Junai, which also kind of speaks to how this company took advantage of its size in order to exploit workers and maybe pay less than, than it should have. And so that motivated me to research on this topic at a deeper level. My prior coming into the project was similar as maybe the one most people might have, say, in, in Colombia or in, in other countries of Central America. My prior was, I'm going to understand why the company was exploiting workers and to what extent that had negative effects on the long run for those workers. Uh, we're we're going to probably touch more upon this later, but kind of the surprising finding that the project had is that at least in the case of Costa Rica, the company actually led to long run benefits. Uh, maybe the most interesting part of the project was to understand why it was the case. So tell me about those benefits. Are we talking about benefits for the workers, for the country? We find benefits for people who are directly working for the company and then their descendants in areas that used to belong to the company. In particular, we look at outcomes like consumption, uh, health outcomes, education, so years of schooling, and they tend to be much better for people who live in areas that used to belong to the United Fruit Company. Also, we look at 
quality of housing and so on, they're all much better in United Fruit Company, areas that used to belong to the United Fruit Company as compared to other areas that have roughly similar characteristics to those of the United Fruit um, before that company arrived. So let me just ask you, because many people might not understand what you're saying, that the land belong to the United Fruit Company. What does what does that actually mean? How can the land be be owned by a company? Yeah. This has to do with kind of the history of how the United Fruit Company came to be. So in Costa Rica, the government wanted to construct a railroad that would connect the capital city, which is in the center of the country, with uh, the Caribbean Sea. However, the government didn't have enough money to do the project themselves. And they hired this American contractor called uh, Minor Kid. You could even think of Minor Kid as an entrepreneur. Minor Kid uh, offered to build a railroad, but in exchange, he would have land concession for 99 years of a big chunk of land that belonged to the Costa Rican government. This was equivalent to 9% of the national territory, so like a massive amount of land, and he could do whatever he pleased with that land. While he was constructing the railroad, he brought workers. Uh, Some of them were coming from Jamaica and other islands in the Caribbean and had African origins. And those workers brought bananas with them, and they started planting those bananas alongside the railroad uh, to eat. And Minor Kid uh, realized that, oh, this fruit grows really well here. It's very tasty and so on. And that's how the United Fruit Company was founded. If you see uh, like blue stickers that say Chiquita today, uh, Chiquita acquired most of what was the United Fruit Company once the United Fruit went bankrupt. And so this was basically the first company that commercialized bananas at a global scale. And it all started in Costa Rica. I mean, I'm assuming that this means that these workers essentially were kind of under the rule, maybe to use a, a not the exact word, but were under the rule of the firm. You know, the land belonged to the firm and they were living in those lands. So is it, is it fair to say that most of the public services and public goods were actually provided by the firm? Yes. So so to paint a, a better picture, the capital city of Costa Rica, as I said, is in the center of the country. These are highlands usually used to grow coffee, especially at that time. And then the United Fruit Company uh, was situated near the coast, so very far away from uh, population centers. Uh, most uh, kind of public goods would not reach these remote areas. These areas actually were almost unpopulated when the United Fruit Company acquired its concession to begin with. And so if people wanted to work for the United Fruit Company, they would have to move to these kind of remote areas with very little, uh, let's call them amenities, uh, and work for the company there. Also, like the United Fruit Company was very concerned with diseases like malaria, for example. So if you were working for the company, they wouldn't allow you to just freely commute from other places. They wanted you to stay put and live inside the plantation. So that doesn't sound that nice, right? That means that these workers were, to some extent, bounded, definitely bounded geographically. They only had one employer that they could work with. Is that is that the case? To some extent, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. You have a massive amount of land and only one employer in that area of land. So if you want to think about it, it's called a local uh, monopsonist. So one big employer, the only employer in this big, big area. This contributed to our prior that, okay, we're going to find these really, really negative effects. But then the stories, if I understand it, that this firm, because it was isolated, because they were owning the land, they also needed to provide these services for their workforce. Because at the end, there is a relationship between that we know today from research that, you know, keeping your workforce happy, just to put it in simple words, is a driver of productivity, is a driver of, um, of profits, etc. Let me walk you a little bit through, through how we discovered kind of what happened. Again, we start with this uh, prior, we're going to find negative effects. Then we actually conducted the analysis and we found positive effects. Like people in former United Fruit companies tend to be better off than people that were working, say, in their own land or people that were working in 
uh, nearby areas and other crops. And the first thing that we thought is when, you know, maybe like the data is not good enough. Maybe the border was not random enough. And, and we went through a process where we would every, would every time get better data, we every time would get a better identification strategy. And we arrived to the point where, okay, we, we believe this is the result. It's super robust. There's no way to, like, you know, turn it around. So let's try to understand what was really happening. And so we went back to uh, National Archives. It turns out that the United Fruit Company would cre- uh, was creating reports uh, every year, sometimes several times per year, for its shareholders and managers in the U.S. And they would explain what were the challenges and the situation in the plantations. And early reports would describe that the company was really struggling with attracting and maintaining workers. So they were uh, maybe hiring someone, they would train the person. The person had to be trained not only in growing bananas, but also in taking care of themselves and not getting sick. That was kind of the main training, sanitation and like keeping uh, diseases away. This is a tropical climate and, you know, diseases have externalities and so on. So they really cared about workers um, knowing uh, what to do and what not to do to get sick. The report described how on average the turnover was only six months and that the reason workers were leaving was because uh, coffee is a seasonal crop. Banana is not. Banana grows year round, but coffee is a seasonal crop. So during the coffee harvesting season, people would leave the plantation and go to the center of the city where amenities were, where their families were, and work for coffee. Um, And then only after the coffee harvesting season was over, they would come back. Basically, the reports were struggling with how can we stop the turnover and keep workers put. And it's uh, after that, that the idea of let's provide amenities for workers to come in with their families started emerging. So uh, the reports describe how uh, they wanted to create schools for the uh, workers' children, houses that were larger so they could come with their families. And so during coffee harvesting season, if they wanted to leave to work in coffee, you know, the kid would lose access to the school. They would have to like move to another house because the family couldn't stay. And so that was the strategy that they um, used in order to um, retain workers. And then the report described how this was actually successful. And it's exactly the amenities that they're describing, the ones that you would think are associated with the long run outcomes that we observe. So education, quality of housing, health, all the family also had access to health from that company, hospitals and schools. And so to some extent, the company was providing these traditionally public goods uh, from which they could exclude people who were not part of the company. Last season in the podcast, we had Anne Stansberry from MIT Sloan, who was telling us a lot about her research on worker power. And and here you're telling me a story that is the other side of the coin, where what eventually gave workers an edge was really their own selfish, put in a way, like preferences of the firm. You know, I wonder if you thought about what are the insights we should get from this? If you were here to tell a firm, like, what are the best practices? Is it going to be on the area of, no, you should own 90% of the land of a country and then provide the public services because nobody else will do? Or is it like about how you should invest in your workers? What are the main insights you think that come out of this? I think that uh, something that you mentioned at the beginning uh, is key. So the company was not doing this because they were good or because there was, like, you know, an intention to do good for the people or for the country. This was coming from a profit maximizing strategy. So in fact, when we look at, for example, the composition of workers' compensation, so workers' compensation can be either money or it can be money and amenities like these services and so on. In points in time, remember, the company was there for like 85 years. So we have many years to look at when the company was facing more competition from coffee, the proportion of compensation that goes to, to amenities versus wages goes up. And so we were trying to think of like, why might the company want to do that and realize that, you know, the choice of the compensation structure is not orthogonal 
to how much power the company has over its workers. So uh, let me give you an example. You're living in this remote area and then you want to move elsewhere to work for a different employer. You probably need to have some money in your pocket in order to do that. But amenities, you cannot take them with you if you leave. You cannot save amenities over time. You can only do that with your wage. So the less I can pay you in wages, the better for the company. And this is actually something that aligns with things that happen in, in, in other countries within the same company. So in Guatemala, for example, this didn't happen in Costa Rica because the government didn't allow it to happen. But in Guatemala, the company was paying workers with vouchers, with company money. And this is the extreme way of like having a, com a, a company-specific compensation. Uh, and so uh, if you leave, you, you cannot save the vouchers. The vouchers are useless if you leave. So all of a sudden, I have all this market power over you. And so I think thinking of companies today, many of them provide workers not only with wages, but also with benefits. The proportion of your compensation that is in wages versus benefits is not orthogonal to how much market power the company has over you. And I think that uh, potentially also has repercussions to how we think about market power. When you take a couple of steps back and you're really thinking about, you know, in today's era, trying to reduce exploitation, trying to reduce monopsony power or like having people really earn the wage that, that it's akin to their potential, etc. Is it really up to competition and the conditions of the market or, or is it more things that firms are kind of realized that in terms of amenities, wages, like th that balance is, is better to move it in one way or another? I think it's kind of both. So so a, a key uh, takeaway from our work is that coffee was key. We have a model where we can do some counterfactuals. If the company had not faced the competition uh, in the labor market from the coffee sector, they would have had no incentive to provide like either amenities or like the wages that they provided to the people because they're facing basically this uh, supply uh, of labor that is inelastic. And so it is only at the moment when you have competition from coffee that you can start thinking of benefits uh, from uh, the company being being in the area. The company was serving a, glo a global market. They were exporting almost everything and coffee was also an export crop. It's competition in the labor market in that it is because people were going to coffee regions and they were losing this labor during key points of the year that they actually needed to think of strategies to retain workers. And so you can think about this more generally as, as workers outside options being what really matters. So the, the outside option of people who are working for the company was to go and work in coffee. All of a sudden, the company has to match this outside option. And well, the company ideally would like to match it only with company specific types of compensation, but it cannot do that fully. Uh, they would do it like to the extent that, that it's possible. Now, like because they did it through these uh, amenities, we find that there were very long lasting uh, positive effects. We don't think the company was actually maximizing the long run benefit effects, but uh, investing in you know education, health, uh, housing, and so on actually did help people in these areas specifically because we were, and, and I think this is something that happens in many developing countries, we were in a second best scenario where the government itself was not providing the optimal benefits of uh, like optimal levels of, of public goods uh, in these dimensions. So every time you have this like kind of uh, second best scenario uh, and, and there's a company that kind of top on uh, the level of amenities in order to reach the optimum and, and then provide the rest as, as wage, uh, like you could think of, of having benefits. But this competition and outside option of the worker is key. And so if you think of countries that are trying to attract main players uh, like multinational firms, it's key that you have this competition either from other multinational firms or from the uh, domestic market in order to reap uh, the benefits for the workers. It seems like to me, the way I read your research agenda has a lot to do with these trends in globalization and sometimes like maybe rocking our priors on how we see things a bit differently, right? So 
So you recently have some work that you are really trying to understand to what extent the backlash, for instance, against against trade that we're seeing. It really depends on very specific circumstances that have to do with the firm, not with the people themselves, right? Can you give me an insight on where this project stands? That kind of uh, line of research uh, specifically wants to understand if, say, when you people think about openness or like free trade, and you put it even more generally, globalization, like, do they just decide their position in the topic based on, say, their their political ideology or some like demographic background, uh, or are there economic fundamentals that change the way that they position themselves? Are people actually selfish, but also thinking about what's in their best interest in economic terms when deciding these positions? And, you know, as an economist, you almost immediately want to say, of course, like people are rational and like want what's best for them. Uh, but looking at work from political science, for example, it's not obvious that the answer is yes. So actually people seem to more, more often than not decide their positions in terms of globalization just based on non-economic factors. And so we wanted to revisit that question with what we thought was a very nice setting to study the topic. And basically what we did was uh, in Costa Rica in 2007, there was a referendum where everyone in the country could vote yes or no and decide whether they wanted the trade agreement between Costa Rica and the United States, which was part of CAFTA, to be approved or not. And so everyone in the country could vote. And, and there was only this one question in the battle, which makes the, made the exercise kind of a cleaner. And we could identify like for groups of voters, not only how they voted, but also who was their employer, in which sector they were, uh, which was their occupation, so many economic fundamentals, along with non-economic factors. So what is the political ideology of these people, demographics of these people, and so on, to basically uh, understand if there was a role for economic fundamentals to change, at least at the margin, uh, people's votes. What we found is that uh, in terms of economic fundamentals, the firm, like the specific employer that you're working for and how that employer would, would benefit or be hurt by the free trade agreement played a big role compared with other economic fundamentals in terms of determining how people were voting. Of course, uh, political ideology was playing also a big role, but like uh, the fact that we could determine that, yes, economic fundamentals do seem to have a kick and the vote was extremely close. So actually, they seem to be pivotal was, we thought, uh, pretty interesting. We also see kind of this interaction between political ideology and uh, economic fundamentals. So like, for example, if your employer was going to benefit from the free trade agreement, even if your political ideology is against uh, free trade, you were more likely to, to, to vote in favor of the free trade agreement. So there's this also like uh, trade off between uh, political ideology and your economic benefit. We can even give like kind of a back of the envelope of how much money uh, would be equivalent to say like a group of people all having the same ideology. This makes me think a little bit about the elections in the US in, in 2016 when, when Trump won the elections. I take that this is very different because you're, you're just looking at one question and that make it very neat, right? And But there, there's also this idea that um, in these elections, trade played a big role or by influencing the views of voters that perhaps were really affected by, by trade in the United States. Do you, do you also see the opposite? Do you also see that people who, who can be hurt by trade and be hurt, be hurt by other globalization aspects would actually react negatively to, to globalization despite their positive views driven by ideology? Kind of the probability that you're going to be against globalization if, say, your ideology is against globalization is smaller if you have, for instance, an employer that was going to benefit from the from the trade agreement. 
is this is not enough to like change the sign completely of, of how you would react, but the probability uh, becomes smaller. So you were mentioning something very interesting that is kind of part of the motivation why we did the project. So like a recent work that studies a topic of like the determinants of trade preferences, and that is based on surveys. So they ask people like, are you in favor or against trade? And then like uh, characteristics of those people. This recent work uh, has tend to find, find that economic fundamentals don't play a role in determining these trade preferences. However, uh, there's also work that is not using surveys, it's kind of more indirect, but that looks, for example, at how, how like the China shock or the China trade war affected um, voting outcomes. And, 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 and this work does find effects. And so we've, we found this kind of like, you know, puzzle or like unclear um, answer to whether economic fundamentals impact voting choices or not. And so like that was part of why we thought there was room to kind of learn more about the topic. This is all very fascinating, Diana. So, so you know, it, it seems that all of your research really uh, looks at the firm, puts a lot of focus on the firm, influencing workers um, much more than 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 maybe we think. So, I wonder if you can give us kind of in the in the last minute we have uh, things that you're looking into that are the most exciting for you over the next year. We have been making progress, but it's still uh, inconclusive in terms of, uh, so for example, thinking about the United company or like these big multinational employers, we found that these effects on long run outcomes like consumption, health, education, but to what extent there's also an impact on, for example, culture and, and, and how many generations this impact can last. So now we have a project that is uh, expanding, kind of maybe blending the two topics that we've talked about today. So we can uh, track people that used to work for the United Fruit Company. We, we know exactly for how long they were working at the company. We know uh, who their descendants are. And then we're trying to explore um, do these people engage differently in elections uh, than people who were never exposed to the United Fruit Company? Preliminary results are, I think, pretty interesting. So we find that people that, uh, like during the United Fruit Company times, because we have results on voting even back then, during United Fruit Company times, people who work for the company were pretty much this completely disengaged uh, from country-level elections. So this kind of makes sense in that you're working for a company that is exporting almost all its output. Uh, wages in the company fluctuate with global shocks, but they don't change with local shocks. So do you care about what's happening to your country? Uh, maybe not so much. During United Fruit Company times, people were very disengaged with uh, national elections. This disengagement continued, although to a lesser extent, uh, after the United Fruit Company left. And this also persists across generations, even people who were never exposed to United Fruit Company themselves, but who had parents who were exposed and even if those parents move to other regions of the country, they are less likely to engage in national elections. The opposite is true for uh, municipal elections. So these people understand that kind of local amenities are really important and are much more likely to engage in municipal elections than their counterparts that were never exposed to the United Fruit and to all the public goods the United Fruit was providing. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, Diana, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you for enlightening us with your research, and and we really look forward to all the exciting things that you are that you are doing. It's really, really, really insightful. Thank you very much, Danny. This was a lot of fun, and and yeah, thanks again for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening in to this fascinating conversation. I want to thank our editor and producer, Adrián Velázquez Martínez, 
for his excellent job on producing this podcast. And I want to thank all of you for listening in. And please, as a reminder, again, uh, give us a rating, share this podcast with your friends and family to really try to get the voices of these leading economies to more and more people. And I'll see you in the next episode.